The following is a production of SAK Digital Ventures. Welcome to Cigars and Sports Chicago, a place where you can sit back, relax, smoke a cigar, and talk about Chicago sports. Now, here's your host, Steve Cass. Welcome to Cigars and Sports Chicago, episode 14. I had originally in my notes called this the baseball or no baseball edition, but now it's officially the no baseball edition, and we'll certainly get to that. So Cigars and Sports Chicago, as you know, because you're a regular listener, this is the best place for cigars and Chicago sports, and we obviously get to other sports as well. Let me set the scene for you. We're here in the Cigars and Sports Chicago studios. The uh, Cigars and Sports Chicago studios are at The Place, 5236 Main Street in Downers Grove, Illinois. That's 5236 Main Street, Downers Grove. Please follow us on Twitter at Cigars and Sports. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at Cigars and Sports. Retweet us. Uh, get other people to follow us. You know We need your support on that. And as I always say... You can get this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts, but you already know that because you're listening to it, so you must have gotten your podcast. As always, we want to introduce, after a week off, by the way, he was relaxing in Florida. He's about to go on another trip now, but I'd like to introduce my co-host, Phil Sullivan. Phil, how are you doing? I First of all, I want to let you know you're not getting paid for last week. Trip was uh, great. You smoking? How's it going? How was the trip a, last a week? Great little relaxing trip down to South Florida, found a nice little town. Uh, the locals told me not to talk about it because they like it that way. A Lauderdale by the sea. Beautiful place to be. So glad to be back. Uh, we'll talk about that pay issue. Um, it could come back to haunt you, but that's okay. Uh, smoking smoking tonight. And what I are you am smoking? going to have a uh, Arturo Fuente between the lines. Beautiful barber pole smoke. Uh, nice little treat. A little pricey, but uh, to uh, celebrate coming back from my trip, I thought I'd have one of those tonight. Uh, but it's great smoke. I am smoking a K by Karen Berger, Connecticut Toro. We had Karen Berger and Bruce Bush on from K by Karen Berger a couple of weeks ago. I was very impressed with their product. And I actually really like in particular that Connecticut Toro. And the funny thing is, Phil, you know what? I noticed that you smoked one of those yesterday as well. I noticed that you did not clean out your ashtray last night. And this morning I went over there and I saw that exact cigar. So why don't you give it a review? Do you like the K by Karen Burger? Connecticut? Up in there. Uh, K by Karen Burger was very generous and it's a all pack. Uh, I did try that cigar. Great smoke. Thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm going to take the rest of that sample pack. I look forward to enjoying the rest uh, while I'm away. Well, that's good. That was just intended to be a passive-aggressive way of saying, please clean up your garbage, throw away you know, your cigars, you know, clean your ashtray out. All right, so what are we going to talk about tonight? We're going to talk some bulls. Got a bit of a down situation going there, but we'll get into that in a little bit of detail. We're going to talk cigars with Ishmael Olivan from Banff Cigars. We're going to have an exciting conversation there. But first, we're going to talk some baseball. As I mentioned before, this was the baseball or no baseball edition. And as it turns out, it's no baseball. 
but we're going to talk a little no baseball with our first guest. We are very happy to have Daniel R. Epstein. He goes by Dan, by the way. Daniel writes for Baseball Prospectus, Off the Bench Baseball, and Bronx Pinstripes. He serves as a co-director of the Internet Baseball Writers Association of America. And in his day job, he's also a teacher and president of his union. So, Dan, welcome to Cigars and Sports Chicago. Happy to have you. Good to be here. You know, you make it sound like uh, some really horrible version of, of Groundhog's Day where like, you know, instead of seeing the shadow, we just end up seeing Rob Manfred practicing a golf swing and, and smiling in front of the camera as he gleefully announces that uh, there's no baseball. Yeah, it is funny that you should mention that because I thought the same thing. I was not able to see his entire media availability today, although he did seem a little cheerful. He kind of seemed like he was just ready to go out to dinner and go fly back on his private plane or go out on some owner's yacht or whatever the case may be. Could he at least pretend that he cares? And by the way, I'm not even necessarily completely against the owners, but could he pretend that he cares? Let's get into this lockout stuff a little bit. So today was the self-imposed deadline um, that came and went without success, and now it appears that we have at least the first couple series of the season canceled. It appears that the major issues are the CBT tax, the competitive balance tax, minimum salaries, and the pre-arbitration pool. By the way, very and we'll get to Phil on this in a minute because he's really into these advanced finance issues, um, but. By the way, all three issues that no one cares about. Then we've got, or, or no one cares except for the owners and the players. That's what I meant. Then we've got the other issues, the 12 or 14 team expanded playoffs, the draft lottery. Then we've got actual baseball issues like the pitch clock and limiting the shift. Or, But maybe you could talk about, Daniel, what you view as the key financial issues and you know why this thing, at least to this point, has not gotten resolved. Well, first of all, Obviously, like all of us, I'm an outsider here, so this is speculative because none of us are in those negotiations. And really, even what has been reported to us is what is very carefully fed to media members by one side, usually by the owner's side. So all the information that we've gotten, even from the reporters who are reporting diligently from Jupiter, Florida, where they've been camped out, you have to take all of it with a grain of salt because when that information is fed to them, it's done so with uh, an eye on how that will impact their negotiations. It's a, it's a strategy. So from what we do know, I'm sorry, there's just no way to blame anyone except for Manfred and the owners on this. Setting aside the fact that they imposed the lockout when they did not need to, this is entirely an owner-driven lockout. There was, even with an expired collective bargaining agreement, there was nothing that forced them to have a lockout and cause a work stoppage and miss games, except for something that they decided to do. And then they didn't propose anything. They didn't even try and negotiate until 42 days after they instituted the lockout on their own. They went on vacation. Uh, and then in, even still then haven't negotiated in earnest. Setting aside all that, the owners have not appeared to move at all in any kind of reasonable direction on any of the financial issues based on how much money MLB generates. And they generate an 
absurd amount. They they generate it's an eleven billion dollar a year industry, and each franchise is worth an average of about two billion dollars, and they're owned by people who are already billionaires, independent of all that. I hear you, but let me jump in on this. So I'm not yeah. disagreeing with anything that you've said factually, mm-hmm. but you know I think that to a lot of people this looks like you know, millionaires versus billionaires. And by the way, I'd like to just point out a fact that I know you would probably point out as well, that two thirds of all major league baseball players don't earn over a million dollars anyway. So I just want to, you know, make that clear. That is true. But it does appear that on all of these issues, and I'm just taking a contrarian position, and obviously you heard Rob Manfred in his comments today sort of run through this, they have moved at least in the other direction on the competitive balance tax. They did offer an increase in minimum salaries. They did offer, I guess, $30 million for this pre-arbitration pool. And the problem is, too, is that, to me, the biggest problem is the lack of transparency in the finances, because we just don't really know what they make. And, you know, we obviously heard, you know, during the negotiations, I don't know if it was Manfred or one of the owners came out and said that, you know, baseball really isn't a very profitable cash flow business. (laughs) Um, And whether that's true or not, you cannot argue with the franchise values, certainly. But, you know, what do you say to the people who say, well, it looks like these guys are getting paid a lot of money. The owners just offered them more. So why isn't that enough? And how do you ultimately determine what is enough? Well, first of all, what the owners have allegedly offered doesn't even keep up with inflation. It doesn't keep up with the rising revenues that MLB is generating off of the players' labor over the past five years or so. Since they signed the last collective bargaining agreement in 2016, revenue has exploded while player salaries have declined on average. So they're making less while owners are making more. And they're just trying to get increases to the competitive balance tax. They're trying to get increases to minimum salary, all those talking points. Just that, like, keep up with inflation, and the owners are not even agreeing to that. So just saying that, like, oh, well, the owners offered a little bit more, relative to how much they're making in revenue, it's actually almost less. It's an insult of an offer from what they've they've given so far, piled on top of the insult that they claim that they're not making money. If you look at Liberty Meeting Group, oh, I'm forgetting the name, the Liberty Group, the name that the organization that owns the Atlanta Braves, okay? Um, They are the only owner whose books are somewhat public because they're a publicly traded company. Well, they had like nine-figure profits last year. And so now they're trying to say that they're not earning cash. That's just not possible. Before you even get into ticket sales and concessions and all that stuff or merchandise or anything, each team gets about 150 to $170 million just on media rights deals from the playoffs that are split you know, multiple ways or for national broadcast. And then you also have the regional sports networks and everything. So the amount of money that teams are generating, it's just far more than just the average player payroll 
just from their their media deals. So like they're they're just making far too much money for the owners to be crying poor in these negotiations. And they're squeezing the players out by trying to refuse to accept an agreement that will at least just keep track with inflation. Phil, let's bring you on in on this because you're very good at giving us kind of the old traditional fans view on this whole thing. You know, we can sit around and talk about, you know, about all these advanced finance issues or, you know, we'll have a sabermetrics conversation and I'll find out that I'm only talking to myself and then you'll call it cybermetrics. What's your take on a fan's view? Because as far as I'm concerned, you know, from what I heard from you, you think it's just millionaires versus billionaires. Just figure this thing out. What's your take? I could go off on a bunch of tangents if I wanted to, but, you know, I'll stick to what we're talking about. Daniel, you brought up a term that, you know, intrigues me. And the term you brought up was inflation. So the game is played for the fans. The fans are feeling inflation. How is baseball, in your opinion, going to deal with, whether it's owners or players, going to deal with the fact that, in my opinion, as baseball moves on, inflation is affecting the fans. The cost to go to a game, the cost to bring your family to a game, the cost to even uh, sign up for MLB Network and watch the games, all these things are affected by inflation that affects the fans also, let alone the players. So you know, what's your take on the future of Major League Baseball when it comes to the cost to the fans to watch the game, let alone start going into the facts of baseball taking uh, you know, three to four hours to play a game, games being played at 10, 11 o'clock at night. How do you get younger fans interested when, you know, the games are, you know, hours after they, most of them are in bed? You know, how do you, how do, you do that, Dan? What's your answer? I, I agree with you on all those things. In fact, I can give you examples of how they're affecting my own family. So my kids are 11 and 7. I would love for them to be as much into baseball as I am, or certainly even as I was when I was their age. But to go to Yankee Stadium, we're Yankees fans, to go to Yankee Stadium for a family of four, that's going to cost us between uh, transportation and tickets and, you know, food at the ballpark and all that. That's going to cost us four or $500 easily. Well, for that much money, we can go to the Jersey Shore for a weekend and they'll probably enjoy it much more. And we can have a much more like, you know, family event out of it. So we, my family has already been priced out of it. And you talk about, you know, the late start times and everything. My son is 11. He's just starting to show some interest in it. Wanted to watch the playoffs last year so badly. Wanted to see Aaron Judge, his favorite player, so badly. Well, by the time Aaron Judge came to bat in a game that started at 8 o'clock Eastern, he was already asleep on the couch. He was trying to stay up, but he just couldn't because... You know, he'd had a long day and it was near his bedtime. And like, even if I was going to let him stay up that late, he just, he just couldn't do it. So that's a fan that baseball has already lost. And that's my own son. So I fully agree with you that these are enormous problems that MLB is pricing themselves out of families and they don't seem to care whatsoever. 
Well, explain those two contrary narratives, though, because initially, and you're obviously you're obviously correct. It's eleven billion dollar industry, and revenues appear to be growing, and certainly the franchise values are exploding. You know, for example, when the Ricketts family bought the Cubs approximately ten years ago, they bought the team and the ballpark for eight hundred eighty-five million, and it was most recently valued at about four billion. So, you know, how is it that you know, on one hand, there's this narrative that the revenues are exploding, but on the other hand, we're pricing people out of the market and you can't go to as many games, et cetera. So what, you know, how is that? It's because they have insulated themselves from the need to sell tickets. Like I said, they're getting 150 to $170 million per club before they sell a single ticket just from the media rights deals. So the gate revenue the popcorn that you're going to buy, all that, I'm not going to say it doesn't matter. But whereas, you know, 50, 70, 80 years ago, that like the gate revenue was all of their revenue. Now it's a, a small percentage of their actual revenue. So they don't have a need to sell as many tickets. They don't have a need to open themselves up to as many people. And the important thing to know about this is that there have been a lot of studies. There have been a lot of research on this that show that player salaries have nothing to do with ticket prices. The team that increased their cost for fans the most last year was the Baltimore Orioles, who had a $42 million payroll and lost 110 games. It's not connected to how well the team does. It's not connected to how much the players make. It's just about like any other product that any other company sells, it's like, what is the price point that we can name that will get us the most money in return? If they think that they can make the most money by selling a ticket for $35, they're not going to drop the price to $32 because they failed to sign a starting pitcher in the offseason. It just doesn't work that way. So it's completely divorced from that. So it's important to have the conversation that you brought up, Phil. It's important to talk about the way that they're pricing out fans, the way that they're they're turning off younger fans and don't seem to care about it. But in a way, it's also a very separate conversation than the one that we're having on the collective bargaining agreement negotiations between the players and the owners, because MLB is still going to have all of those problems regardless of what kind of a deal they agree to with the players. The average fan, though, I think, isn't paying attention or care about, you know, arbitration, bonus pools, or balance tax thresholds, and things that you might need an MBA in economics to understand. You know, the average fan cares about going to a game and seeing a game, and then if you can't get their interest from seeing the game, you're not going to get their interest to watch the games later at 10, 11 o'clock at night and watch 160 of them. You know, I just think long-term, I think baseball has a problem. And, you know, to blame it right now on the owners or the players, I don't think the average fan cares who it's blamed on. They want it over. They got a little problem moving ahead 10, 15 years from now. They might solve the problem this year, but I think moving forward, you know, I don't see it. They got to do something to get another generation interested. Well, another thing that shows you their priorities is they're spending all this time on the financial issues. I haven't heard 
a lot of discussion about the actual baseball issues. You know, how are you going to increase the pace of play? There was this whole thing about, you know, limiting the shift. Well, it sounds to me like they had a conversation for 10 minutes and they were like, hey, here's how you limit the shift. Just make sure that you got to have two people on either side of second base and you can't do that anymore. The players were like, you okay with that, you guys? All right, that's cool. And the owners are like, all right, whatever. As long as it doesn't cost us anything, we don't care. I mean, they figure that <laughs> stuff out in five seconds. And I don't even think any Anyone seems to care very much about the pitch clock, even though we're now we have an official term for it. It's called the pitch timer. But it doesn't appear that anyone <laughs> even cares about the pitch timer, which I think is probably a good thing. They sp they're spending no time whatsoever on these issues. And if you look at the other sports, it doesn't look like a coincidence that the NFL is number one because it's the best product. And by the way, it appears that there is some partnership between the league and the players. And, you know, the NBA is clearly second. The other thing you see, too, is that in the other sports, and I'm not praising Roger Goodell, but in the other sports, it does actually feel like this person that has the title of the commissioner is actually the commissioner, where in Major League Baseball, it just feels exclusively that Rob Manfred is the CEO of the owners because that's what he actually is. And if I were them, one of the things that I would be negotiating is to have a commissioner. Fine, make Rob Manfred the CEO of the, of the owners. But maybe you should get somebody <laughs> who cares about baseball to be the actual commissioner and put them on top of the two sides. Wouldn't that be nice? I would love nothing more than that, than somebody who is actually interested in fairness and in growing the game and promoting the game and solving all the issues that Phil, you brought up, someone who actually cares about those things, being commissioner, that would be the best possible thing for the sport, I think. But the problem is the owners have no incentive to replace Manfred with somebody like that, somebody who's actually interested in the game. Manfred is good at the job that the owners have tasked him with which is to make them as much money as possible. I don't trust either side. I don't trust the players either, because if you remember when they started, their whole primary narrative was about competition and they were, you know, they're all over this draft lottery thing, which, you know, clearly is something that will happen. And, you know, you have Scherzer was talking a lot about just the, the idea of making the teams more competitive and getting these smaller market teams, you know, in a position where there was some kind of balance and that sort of thing. But all I can think about is this must be some sort of ploy that I can't figure out yet on how, you know, to get more money, but I just can't figure out exactly what it is. So let's talk about an actual issue that has at least something to do with baseball. And I think you're probably in the detail a little bit on this, Dan, and that's the expanded playoffs. So there's obviously a discussion about whether there should be 12 or 14 teams in the playoffs. And I guess the the owners want 14. I mean, as far as the owners are concerned, they probably go for 26 teams in the playoffs. But the owners want 14. The players want 12. But the interesting thing on this 14-game format that I'm not sure that I was aware of it until the last few days, but I guess there's a buy for the team with the best record, and then the other three top-seeded teams get to pick their opponent in the wild card round. And it's a three-game series with all three games at home. Could you go through the detail on that? I'm not sure that I fully understand a lot of the details and what those playoff formats look like, to be honest. And not only that, but until they're agreed to, they're all subject to change. 
we don't know what what any of them really could look like. But uh, I think that when you have a sport where you have 30 teams, each playing 162 games, and then half of them get into the playoffs anyway, you're creating a situation like NCAA basketball, where the regular season almost doesn't even matter at all. You know, like March Madness has completely eaten alive the the regular season for uh, NCAA basketball. March Madness is great, but, you know, that's a big problem when your regular season doesn't matter. MLB cannot afford to go down that same road. And if you open up the playoffs too big, then that's exactly what you're going to have happen. Well, the other thing is, too, is that in baseball, in the postseason, unlike the NFL, for example, there is a randomness to the playoffs. By the way, there's a team called the Atlanta Braves that just won the World Series, which basically proves out that entire theory. If you get into the postseason, you have a decent chance to win the World Series. You know, if yeah. you, the NBA, to me, is the most pure sport. Pretty much, regardless of the fact that there's 16 playoff teams, at the end of the season, exclusive of injuries, the best team wins the championship. It's just how it works out. You know, once every 10 years, you're going to have a seven seed beat a two seed or, you know, whatever. It just, it just doesn't happen. Where in baseball, if you get in and, you know, you've got two guys at the top of your rotation that are pitching well and you're bullpen is clicking and you get some timely hitting. I mean, anything can happen. And that worries me as well, that we're going to have these teams that, you know, are 79 and 83 winning the world series. And maybe it's going to happen in back to back years. And then the, yes, the regular season will mean absolutely nothing. The other thing is too, is I'm not entirely convinced that a buy in baseball is a good thing. If you just have to sit there cold for a week watching other teams play, I mean, yeah, you get an opportunity to line your pitching up, but I'm not sure that's necessarily a good idea. Well, I'm not sure either, and you're absolutely right. You hit the nail right on the head. Just the inherent nature of baseball makes it so that you really can't compare playoff structure to other teams because it is a much more random sport. Than, than football or basketball or, or, or really just about any other sport. It's just the way it is. That's why you have to play 162 games in the regular season to begin with. I mean, let's say the Orioles were to play a three-game series against the Dodgers, all right? Obviously, the Dodgers are favored, and obviously the Dodgers are going to win that series most of the time. But probably if you were to play that same series out 10,000 times, the Orioles win maybe a third of them. And that's not nothing. So it's just a very random sport. And when you have a short series, any Major League Baseball team can win a short series against any other. And when you stack enough of those short series together, then you end up with a situation where you have a team like Atlanta that wins the World Series. And, you know, all credit to them and everything. They played their tails off in the postseason. They deserve it. But they also were 88 and 73 in the regular season. The Blue Jays won 91 games and finished fourth in the AL East. So that's just the way the sport works. And you've already got the, the current playoff structure with 10 teams where it's already very random. If you open it up even further, then we're, we've got somewhere where you're going to have a below 500 team in the World Series. And that's just not the way baseball was meant. It's going to be 12 or 14. They are going to open it up. Yes. So we are going to get that. One more money question that I'm just curious as to your take on this. Income inequality, which is uh, you know a big thing in society in general, but if you look at income inequality in baseball, if you take a look at the difference between 
the top guys and the sort of average guys, not to mention, you know, the two thirds of the guys that don't make a million dollars a year, there's an incredible disparity and it's an incredible historic disparity as well. And I wonder, does that have something to do with why they can't come to an agreement? Meaning that are these guys who make 30 and $40 million a year, and many of them who are involved in this process and, you know, as a Scott Boris, but do you think that, you know, when you make 30 or 40 million a year, I think it's fair to say that to some extent you are detached from reality. And I wonder, do you think that has something to do with the fact that it's very difficult to get the players to agree regardless of what their point is? If you think that Max Scherzer makes too much, wait till you see what Steve Cohen earns. You know, he's a white collar financial criminal with $11 billion. It would take Max Scherzer, uh, you know, more than a lifetime of seasons at $40 million to make anywhere near what Steve Cohen has. Uh, but let's, let's expand that even further. Look at the minor leaguers. You've got somebody who grew up in abject poverty in the Dominican Republic who's coming to the United States and is earning after taxes and, and, paying for rent and everything like that, maybe $50 a month with which he has to try to feed himself. There's no reason for for anyone to be able to treat their employees like that, let alone people as rich as MLB. So I I don't think... I I don't think that Scherzer makes too much money. I just think he makes a lot of money because I'm just a believer mm-hmm. in if that's what the market bears, no one is forcing, you know, he's not paying himself his 45 million a year or whatever he's right. got on his, you know, on this most recent deal. It's what but, he was offered. You know, right. That's what he was offered. And I don't blame him for taking it, but, um, and that's what the market bared for him. But yeah, but he certainly makes a lot of money. He does. And, and Hey, I'm a teacher. People bring up teachers as a straw man all the time. Like, Oh, well, if, if Scherzer can make this, how come teachers are only making this? Well, uh, I've been a teacher 16 years. I've never gotten a dollar from an MLB owner. Every dollar Scherzer doesn't make just stays in, in Steve Cohen's wallet. But you bring up a good point about the top end of the, the market of players. The salaries keep going up and up and up. And they're worth it because that's what the market will bear for them. But I also mentioned earlier the average player's salary has gone down. So what does that tell you? It tells you that the people in the middle, you're like pretty good middle reliever, your platoon second baseman, your guy who's like a solid guy on the roster, but not that big a deal. His salary is going way down. And not only that, fewer of them are making teams because MLB is replacing them with guys from the minors earning the minimum. So when you have the top of the market earning more and more and more, and the average going down, that tells you that the middle is getting eviscerated. And you look at the the Tampa Bay Rays, and like I'm not blaming them for this. They they exploit a broken system. But the Tampa Bay Rays have one of the lowest payrolls in baseball all the time, and one of the best teams in baseball all the t- all the time, because they do things like trading Willie Adamas before he becomes arbitration eligible. <laughs> like Willie Adamas, obviously they had Wander Franco, but they do this all the time. They trade good players just because they might make a little bit more money and because they can replace them with players who are earning the minimum at the time that they are actually in their prime. 
And obviously, you know, analytics has a lot to do with that too, because now that you can establish, you know, what is a replacement level player, it doesn't matter if that replacement level player has 10 years of experience, you know, or has no years of experience. If you're basically going to get the same performance out of them and he's cheaper, then it, it certainly makes more sense to do that. So let's talk something that's slightly closer to baseball. So let's assume we shouldn't assume this, but let's say that this thing gets resolved at some point in the near future. And by the way, I, I tend to think that maybe it won't. What do you think is going to happen with these almost 200 free agents? You know, the name guys being like Correa, Trevor Story, Freddie Freeman, you know, Chris Bryant, all these guys. How quickly do you think these guys are going to sign? And maybe more importantly, do you think that they now regret not signing before the lockout because man even if you do have a lot of money i would guess that they are feeling some anxiety you know if you're chris bryant not knowing if you're going to sign in seattle or potentially with the mets because in the end let me just use that as one example as chicago you know chicago example he is going to sign wherever the highest one dollar is that's you mm -hmm. know that guy but you know he's sitting around like telling his family wondering where the hell he's going to sign do you think those guys are going to regret not signing before the deadline i think that if any of them have that regret it probably won't buy be a financial one because i think that whatever they would have gotten before the lockout is similar to what they'll have gotten after the lockout i don't think that we're going to see a huge impact on the contracts that people sign after the lockout compared to what we expected them to sign before the, the offseason started. I think that if they're having a, lot, uh, a regret, it's because of what you just said. It's because of the uncertainty. You know, I don't know if Chris Bryant, um, like what Chris Bryant's family situation is. And yeah, there's a big difference. He could, he could be living anywhere in the country. And, you know, he's not obviously going to sign a one-year deal. This is a long-term commitment for him and for his family, uh, as it is for all the free agents. Some of them obviously are more willing to, to stomach that end of it than others. And I think that's why we did see a bit of a flurry before the lockout began. I think it's not necessarily... That aspect of it wasn't necessarily driven by the finances. I think it was driven by the fact that people just didn't want to go in, into this with uncertainty and they just like wanted to put down roots. They wanted to go look for houses and whatnot. Um, so, and you don't know who that applies to and who that doesn't apply to. That's everyone's own personal decision there. But um, it's just my prediction. I don't know. Uh, but I, I don't think that we're going to see contracts that are crazy out of line either above or below what we expected their market value to be. Yeah, one last point that I wanted to ask you about, and I haven't heard anyone talking about this, and I don't know if you guys have thought about this, but game cancellation. So Daniel's best friend, Rob Manford, today made it very <laughs> clear that these, that these games are canceled. So it appears to me that they are not going to re-rack the schedule um, because, you know, he pointed out that thing about the interleague play. There's an interleague series every day and that sort of thing. It appears that, for example, they're just going to cancel at this point the first two series of the year. Well, you know, you talk about competitive balance. I just started thinking about this. So what if you have Team A that is opening the first two series, by the way, um, on the road against the Rays and the Astros, and then Team B is playing at home versus, you know, Kansas City and Baltimore? So, I mean, isn't that going to create a bit of a 
you know, competitive issue where you're also you're going to have teams that don't have the same number of home and road games. I mean, has anybody thought about this yet? Well, what about you know, taking into consideration also, what about the teams that maybe miss two series against uh, fellow division teams? So that's a big difference whether you're going to be playing teams in your division and losing those games or losing games against teams that aren't in your division. You're absolutely right. I mean, the answer is yes. It's not going to be fair. Um, now, they can always rearrange the schedule, but that's complicated because they've already sold tickets for some of these things, you know, season tickets and whatnot. There is already inherent imbalance in strength of schedule in all sports, really. I mean, if you if you look at uh, the schedule that the White Sox have with all the inch, the, the division games that they have against a an otherwise very weak AL Central and compare that to the schedule that the Orioles have where they're facing four behemoths in the AL East, like strength of schedule just doesn't compare. So, I mean, the Orioles aren't, they're not going anywhere anyway, but you get the point. Um, Just even if we played a full 162, it's not evenly balanced, but you're right. Like if you knock off, you know, a week of games and let's hope it's no more than that. um, Who knows? But that that week is going to favor some and not others. Okay, so I'm going to give you guys an over-under date, and uh, I want you to to tell me whether you think over or under. Uh, May 1st, opening day, over or under. Phil, what do you got? Well, this coming from the guy that at 1 o'clock today said the strike was over by 4. So, um, you know, I, I got it. Yes. yes, you did, um, which I disagreed with. So I won that one. Uh, I think this uh, strike will be over by the end of this weekend. They'll have it settled. Lockout. Lockout. Uh, okay, so you so you say um, under May 1st. The, the opening day will be before May 1st. Is that what yes. you're saying? Yes. All right. Dan, what do you got? Uh, I wish I could say under, but I'm going to say over. I think the owners proved in 2020 how little they care about canceling regular season games. Uh, they, cause they make almost all their money on, well, not almost all, but they make so much more money on the postseason games that the regular season games matter very little to them comparatively. And they will stretch this out as long as they need to, to try and eke every dollar out that they can. Well, I also think that it's going to be over because I think now that they've gone past their deadline and the season has already been damaged, I think that they're going to want to just show that they can stick they can stick with it and just wait the players out and play some chicken and see what happens. So yes, I fear that it is also over. Um, it also appears that we have learned that we need about a month of spring training. Um, so however long it is, it's going to be about a month, month after that. And then of course, about 35% of all pitchers in major league baseball by June 1st, will need um, Tommy John surgery. So But anyway, so I would like to thank you, Daniel Epstein. We really appreciate you being on tonight. It was uh, was absolutely fantastic having you. And by the way, that's Daniel R. Epstein. You can find Daniel on Baseball Perspective, uh, Off the Bench Baseball, and Bronx Pinstripes. Also, if people want to follow you on Twitter or other social media, where can they find you, Daniel? At D. Epstein, 1983. Excellent. Well, it's been great having you. We really appreciate it. Uh, thanks a lot. We're now depressed, but at least you gave us some good information. Thanks. <laughs> I have that effect on people, but it's good talking to you guys. I appreciate <laughs> nice you having to, me on. Nice to meet you, Dan. Great having you on the show. Phil, what do you say we do some cigar talk now? You good with that? Sure. Go ahead. Let's see what we got here. All right.
We would like to welcome in to Cigars and Sports Chicago our guest, Ishmael Olivan. Ishmael is the owner, and by the way, that's Ish uh, for you and I, is the owner of Banff Cigars. That's B-A-M-F, and we'll let him explain what that stands for. And Ish is a 11-year veteran of the Spanish Army. He's a martial arts instructor. Uh, he is also, by the way, a contractor in the anti-terrorist industry, so don't screw around with Ish. And by the way, Ish is just a general badass, and that's why his cigars are called Badass Mofo. So welcome, Ish. We're happy to have you on Cigars and Sports Chicago. Thank What's you so going much on? for having me. How are you guys doing? How are you guys doing? Welcome, Ish. Doing great. Doing welcome on the show. Tell us about Banff Cigars. How did you get the name? Uh, how did you get into the cigar business? Just tell us a little bit about the Banff Cigars, what other brands you sell. Give us, an, uh, give us a rundown. What happened is I've been smoking cigars for 35 years. And I started to smoke cigars when I was 15, 16. About 22 years back, I came to the United States. Obviously, I know how to roll cigars over there. I saw how people do everything in Europe. I came over here, and a very good friend of mine and myself, in patrol breaks, who yes, smoke a cigar. So um, he is still a SWAT team over here in the PVCO, uh, Public Sheriff Office. And uh, he just patrol around, has his break, come to the house, and smoke cigars. And one day we say, well, we don't do a cigar together. Okay, let's do it. And both of us at the same time came with a name. I say, Banff, he say B-A-M-F. say, how you know that? I say, how you know that? Because he is a former AES Marine, and I've been many years in the military as well. And that's how we start. We just went, put the cigars together, put the blend together. So I go to the factory, I become an importer, and that's how it is. It's everything in house, you know, from the factory to the export, to the import, to the sell the cigars, it's just one people right now. So. And I think you have multiple yeah. brands. So talk about the, the various brands and, and sizes and what you're selling. How do you do distribution? Take us through, uh, take us so, through your, uh, your stuff. My own, it is BAMF, K9 Cigars, and Don Oliver, my last name, Cigars. Then I produce cigars for 70 other different companies. And we have four that need our habits, so I register everything. And what we do, we have from every single thing, from the real Petit Corona all the way to a Moac, which is a 110 range by 12 inches, super treble 85 by 17 and a half. Salomon's 57, 7 and a quarter. Uh, we do a superhero like the Punisher, Batman, Spider-Man. All our cigars are totally different, kind of like a boutique. One thing I noticed as I was reading up about you is that your signature is the barbed wire. Tell us about the barbed wire because I definitely have to get my hands on some of those barbed wire cigars. And if you could explain that because our listeners can't really see that, um, I can see it. It looks pretty cool. But if you could explain that. So the barbed wire is, is just a Robusto 50 by 5. It's a San Andres, but then the rope around to do the barbed wire is a Connecticut. So it changed the color. And we just did like a when you go to a camp or you go to a, a military base or whatever, you have the bow wire. So people 
not for us not to go out, you know, for people not to go in. So it's the power. And that was the whole thing about the cigar. You know, let, let's do something. Everything that we do is, is, you know, it can be a 12 gauge, it could be a green tip, it could be. So this one is the power and it's, it's different cigar. So it's a, it takes a lot of time to smoke it, believe it or not, even for a small size, because the rope around the power is slow down the burn. Most of the tobacco that we have in the in the band, it will be Cuban seed, and because the FDA allow you to do, because it's rolling in my factory in the DR, even Cuban tobacco as well. So it's, it's very, very different cigar than the rest of the cigar that you can find otherwise. So is all of your tobacco grown in Dominican Republic, and is that where um, the cigars are constructed? Is that your factory? Do you own that? Um, do you, you know? Do you produce other brands for well, other people? Uh, the factories are in the DR. We have three factories in the DR. One we just had like about six, seven months ago. Is the biggest one. It's thirty-five thousand square feet. Then we have another two ones. Uh, another two others. One is very small. It's about three thousand square feet. That that's for flavor cigars. I will not do flavor cigars with premium cigars. <clears throat> it's, it's not worth it. The, the, the risk. We don't do that. And the other one is just for production for all the people. So that's the three that we have. Now we have a sister company in Zimbabwe. So in Africa, we have that one. And the, the tobacco that we have is Dominican Republic. We have Honduras in Mexico, Nicaragua, Africa, Ireland, uh, Transylvania, Romania, <clears throat> Italian. Because for some reason, if you buy the tobacco, the leaves, not the seed in Cuba, but you roll in different country, now it's legal. Doesn't make sense, <laughs> but that's, that's how the law is. So. A lot of things don't make sense, Esha. You don't yeah. have to worry about that. You know? <laughs> well, how is business? How so is far business so good. going right so now? So far so good. And honestly, it's sad to say it, but the, what it helped us a lot was the pandemic. During the pandemic, people were more home. Yeah. They were not able to go to the brick and mortars or nothing like that. So it was more online and online sales. And the business are going great. Yeah, that's interesting. We are hearing the exact same thing. We interview uh, people on this show every week, and to a person, uh, everyone has told us that the pandemic has certainly been great for the cigar business. What is your target market? How do you market your cigars? Who do you sell to? Obviously, you have sort of that that badass approach, and that's sort of the image that you're trying to portray. Um, you know, so how do you market? Who are you selling to? I mean, are you selling to military guys? You know, what, what's going well, on? Well, what happened is that at first it was just online. Uh, and then uh, people told me, hey, come on, why you, you don't go to the brick and mortis, do something else or whatever? So uh, I just uh, have a part now in distribution center in California. It's in uh, China Lakes in Ridgecrest, where is the biggest Navy base in the whole United States, where the Tom Gunn and all those movies were uh, filmed. It's over there. So we are running right stores in Nevada, uh, California, uh, New Jersey, and many other places. I'm funny. I lived in Florida for 22 plus years, and I don't have the cigars over here. People want me to have the cigars. I didn't have the time, honestly. I didn't have the time at all. So now that I'm going to be mostly about 95% of my job, of my work, it will be cigars. It's going to be all over the place. But, uh, but yeah, the, the BAMF, I don't even have to do publicity. Army first responders, so meaning police, uh, uh, firefighters, uh, EMC, everyone knows the, what it means and, and they buy it. Yes, it's, it's good. It's pretty good. 
So Ish, when we first started out, you know, when I was introducing, we mentioned you're uh, an 11 year Spanish military veteran. Uh, you know, you're a, you're a martial arts instructor. You do some anti-terrorism stuff. So you know what? Tell us a good story. I mean, what do you got for us? Tell us, you know, nothing classified, of course, but, you know, if you want, that's fine, too. But tell us a good story where maybe you killed some guys or, you know. Well, just it's many stories that you can tell a, a lot. So <laughs> you can do a book with those. But I don't know, a funny story, for instance, it was uh, going in, in Angola. That's uh, 1994. So we're going to Angola and uh, we're flying and we have to jump. And uh, for some reason, the pilot, I don't know if he was sleeping or whatever, he jumped about 75 miles away for we had to land. So we land and we had to walk 75 miles back. And thanks to the residents over there, they give us water, food or whatever. And it was no kills. It wasn't nothing. It was just to take a radio station down. And it was the most easy no easy. It was painful. It was 75 miles, but it was with all the equipment, but it was the most easy and with nothing happening at all. So that's one of the stories I like because it was not blood. It was not bullets. It was not nothing. It was just easy to do. So that's one of them. But we have, oh, I have many, 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 many of them. How long did it take to walk 75 miles? It took us uh, about almost day and a half because we have all the equipment of us and we didn't stop moving to sleep just keep going and going and going and going and going it was 12 for myself 13 so that was no fun you know and in place that you don't know and you have to go with uh, you know navision goggles and then the bodies go out then you have to put new it was it was kind of like keeping the neck but uh, but we have it done <laughs> You were at the Great Smoke in West Palm this weekend, actually. So you and Phil were both in Florida, right? Um, how, how was that? What would you learn over there? How was it? What it, happened? It, it was great. It was probably uh, the, okay, people start to come over here for other stays in Wednesday. Uh, I have people coming to my house to smoke cigars. We have like a, three or four people over here. Then Thursday, we went to smoke. Friday again. Saturday was the event. It was it was good. It was probably I will say I, I don't know, but probably about twenty two to twenty five hundred people. It was uh, four hours. It was pretty nice. Very happy, everyone. You make tons of contacts. You know, you see over there all the big names. You know, you, you see uh, uh, Fuente, you see uh, uh, Cadwell, you see Perdomo, you see Placencia, you see all these guys. You know, and it, it, it was pretty good. And the good thing I like about this these events is that. That's the matter who you are. You equal. That's the matter who you are, how much money you have, how much, how big your house is, or how big your car is. That's the matter. Everyone is equal, and and it's, it's fun. It's very fun. All right. So if people want to buy Banff cigars, how do they do that? How do they buy Banff cigars? How do they get in touch with you? Uh, tell, well, tell us they, about that. Mostly the website, which is uh, BAMF Cigars with an S. Dot uh, com. O R O C F cigars.com. ROCF comes from my two last names. My name is Ishmael Olivan, but it's Rodriguez Olivan Cigars Factory. It's ROCF cigars.com or BAMF cigars.com. That's great. Well, that is Ishmael Olivan. Ishmael, we appreciate you being on Cigars and Sports Chicago. You were great. It's great to hear about you. Go to the Banff site, Banff Cigars. Dot com and you can uh, you can buy some of those things. I strongly recommend that you take a look at those barbed wire cigars. That's pretty cool, pretty cool novelty. And uh, thanks a lot for being with us tonight, Ish. Thank you for having me.
Thanks, Ish. Nice meeting you, and I'm definitely Thank looking you, forward to one of those uh, Barb Wire cigars. Looking forward to trying You got those. it. Thank you. Thank you. Phil, let's talk some Bulls. The Chicago Bulls enter today two games back in the Eastern Conference behind Miami. After winning six straight, and by the way, those six straight were all pretty much against winnable teams. They've dropped their last two, first to Memphis and then last night in Miami, and Miami was particularly not good. By the way, if I could go off track for a second, speaking of Memphis, that game the other night, uh, John Morant is absolutely amazing. After torching the Bulls for 46 on Saturday night, the guy dropped 52 on San Antonio last night. He is all about speed and athleticism. The guy's just incredible, reminds me maybe young Derrick Rose, um, but maybe even a better scorer. But um, that's that. We're not worried about him. But going back to the Bulls in Miami, last night, very poor defensive night. They shot uh, 24% from three. And definitely one problem that seems to become very evident. Last night, five offensive boards the entire night um, and only six offensive rebounds the night before against Memphis. So my question to you, Phil, are the Bulls contenders or are the Bulls just bum slayers? And, you know, it's really interesting because it's almost the same question that we had with the White Sox last year as they led almost wire to wire in their division. And I'm starting to feel that way a little bit about the Bulls. They definitely win the games that they're supposed to win. But when they play good teams, uh, it seems to be problematic. So, first of all, what's your take? Well, bum slayers or good team? They're not bum slayers. They got a good team, but the injuries are just killing them. Uh, you can't play the best teams without your best players. They're, you can't play them well. Uh, they definitely got to get uh, Caruso back. They got to get Williams back. Uh, Caruso would be a, a great uh, help on the defensive end. You know, both of them were wrist injuries, predicted to be back in mid March, uh, without even lightly saying about Lonzo Ball. Uh, you know, with his knee surgery. They're all predicted to be back within a month. How they come back, I don't know. They're going to need those players. You know, you talk about last night with the rebounding. I think the the quiet addition of Tristan Thompson certainly helps. Uh, he's a veteran player. He played on some, a championship team with Cleveland. You know, had a nice career with them. I think it helps having a guy like that on the team with playoff experience. He can help the younger guys. But the injuries have uh, definitely been a killer to the Bulls. You know, I hear you on the injuries, and I, I mean, it's certainly it's inarguable that they have injuries, and that certainly Caruso, Ball, and, you know, I don't know what we're going to get from Patrick Williams, but I'd rather have him than not have him. So I agree with the injuries, but here's the thing. In the NBA, every team has injuries. Last night, the Heat basically just busted them, and they were down two All-Stars. Kyle Lowry didn't play last night. Oladipo has been out. I mean, that's going to be a much better team, and I would argue that they're probably going to get more out of the guys that they had out last night than the Bulls are going to get. I agree with you. Certainly, without question, Ball and Caruso are their best defensive players on the entire team. You know, Ball gives you a lot of flexibility um, with his length. He can basically play any wing. You can put him on anybody. The guy's really, really useful. I mean, Caruso was leading the league in steals when he went down. You know, wrist injuries obviously really bother me. I'm less worried, frankly, about um, about Ball with the meniscus because it appears that, you know, once he's back, he should be fine. Uh, but the other two, Williams and Caruso, just started rehab, just got the, the cast off, I guess, and that began basketball activities. And I'm definitely worried about the wrist. But here's my other question, too, related to the bum slayers thing. So... And I'm not saying that they necessarily are bum slayers, but their schedule 
for the rest of the way is extremely difficult. They've got 20 games left, of which 12 are on the road. The next three games are at Atlanta and then the Bucks um, at home. And then the Sixers on the road, you know, the Sixers have been way better with Harden, um, who appears to really have his head in the game. We have no answer for Embiid. Um, Vooch now also has a sprained ankle, so he's playing, but he's not at 100%. Then after those three games, we have Cleveland at home, which Cleveland is a very difficult matchup for us based on size. And then after those four games, nine of 10 on the road. And according to Tankathon, the Bulls have the second most difficult schedule in the entire NBA the rest of the year. So I'll tell you, I am worried. I mean, I am very worried about being able to come in any better than fourth. But what's your take on that schedule? Because this is going to be a rough go. Well, I mean, the schedule wasn't fair. There's no doubt about it. It wasn't fair to the Bulls. I'm not just saying, uh, you know, generically it's not fair. But, uh, you know, the Bulls back to what they were, even being all healthy, I do not think the Bulls were an NBA Finals team, not with some of the teams they got to match up again in the Eastern Conference, assuming they're all healthy. I just think if the Bulls were all healthy, they would have a definitely better record and be a lot more competitive with these better teams than they have been. I mean, it's pretty pathetic. They're 1-11 against teams with a 600 winning percentage, uh, which is, uh, you know, it's not going to get you anywhere in the NBA, but... I, I think even healthy, once again, I don't think they're an NBA Finals team. Not this year. I knew it. I knew we could get you to go negative. But, you know, I just think they'd be a better team if they were a healthier team. They'd, they'd be better against these better teams. I mean, all you need to know, you know, you talk about teams with over a 600 winning percentage. Of their last 20 games, they have three games against Milwaukee. I mean, this is going to be a troubling situation. we got to take this game by game. And if you look at the schedule, the games that they should win, they have to win. And I think the goal has got to be in these last 20 games, the goal has got to be in these last 20 games, They've got to at least win 10 games. But it's amazing because earlier, if you would have thought a month ago, will the Bulls win 50 games, you probably would have said, yeah, absolutely. They're going to certainly win 50 games. And now it's going to be a hell of a battle um, to get from where they are now to win 11, 12, 13 more games. And frankly, I don't expect them to do that. I tend to have the optimistic view, but They've got to play some defense. They got to get some offensive boards, and they're going to have to beat some of these, you know, some of these good teams. And the next four games will be telling. Worst case scenario over these next four: Atlanta, Milwaukee, Sixers, and Cleveland. They got to go two and two in those games because then nine of ten on the road. Right. So, and the other question mark towards the end of the season is how do some of these teams do? Some of these teams start putting themselves in cruise control uh, going into the playoffs really not caring whether they're a two-seed or a three-seed or a four-seed. Uh, do some teams put themselves in cruise control, rest a few players, which, you know, then for the Bulls could uh, pertain to a few more wins. Uh, just not sure, but once again, I, I, they got to get their health back. No doubt about this it. This ain't baseball, man. going to be no cruise control in the Eastern Conference where the top five teams are basically separated by four and a half games and these seeds mean a lot because the one and two seeds where you get to play the play-in teams in the first round that's going to make a really big deal i mean i'm just telling you it's looking like the bulls are going to draw a very difficult matchup in the first round and the last thing that i want to see is them somehow go one and out in the playoffs i mean we do not deserve that phil we need better than that we at least got to get a series win 
It would help, but like you said, it's going to be a tough go for him. There's no doubt about it. Well, Phil, that's it for episode 14 of Cigars and Sports Chicago. Great job as always. We appreciate having Ishmael Olivan from Banff Cigars. It was great having Daniel R. Epstein from Baseball Perspective and the Internet Baseball Writers of America. He was great as well. Great baseball conversation. Phil? Thank Great. You. Good good show. I held back on uh, an old man rant on you there, but uh, we'll go over that later. Yeah, we'll get it next time. All right, guys. Well, uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us. Thanks to uh, Bear, our producer, for an excellent job as always. We'll be back next week. That is Cigars and Sports Chicago. Talk to you later. That's all empty and I don't care. So my baby down by the river. You should never come up soon for there. Sweet blossom, come on, under the willow We can have high times if you look back We can discover the wonders of nature Rolling in the rushes down by the riverside